This is Founders Corner, where we sit down with leading entrepreneurs to hear their stories around building and scaling companies and the lessons they've learned along the way. Founders Corner is brought to you by the Emerging Technology Group at Omidyar Network. We invest in mission-driven, for-profit entrepreneurs who want to build great companies and change the world. Today's host is Rob Veras, Venture Partner at Omidyar Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Founders Corner. I'm Rob Veras. I'm excited to be joined today by someone I've gotten to know over the last year, uh, Michael Karnjenepercorn, founder and CEO of Skillshare. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So uh, I mentioned you're CEO of Skillshare. Can you tell us a little bit more about Skillshare and uh, maybe how you got the company started? Yeah, so Skillshare is a platform that allows anyone to learn anything from anyone. Um, so the way it works is very similar to, I'd say, uh, let's say YouTube. So anyone can create a class, upload it to the platform, and students all around the world can enroll into them. Um, we focus pretty heavily on, on what we called you know, professional skills. So um, anything related to design or photography or being a freelancer or starting a business are typically the classes that, that pop up on the platform. So I know uh, the sort of origin of Skillshare, you started the company with, I think, less than $5,000. And you actually you even have a class on Skillshare, I think, about uh, getting your startup going with uh, not a lot of capital. Can you talk a little bit about the principles there and uh, that experience? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that was actually out of constraint then, you know, um, and this was all the pre-lean startup movement. Um, so when we first started the company, um, we set criteria for how we would approach it. So we, we kind of said, you know, we're going to focus and build for three months. Um, and number two is that we weren't going to actually build anything on the product side. We're just going to be very user-centric and talk to users, figure out ways we could hack it. And three was we capped the budget at 5K. Um, and with, with, that, with those constraints, um, we spent a lot of the early, early, early days just talking to a lot of users to figure out what was wrong, why, why Skillshare as a concept wouldn't work out. And um, I would say the first wave of talking to our friends um, and talking to a lot of potential users, all the feedback was overwhelming, like just really, really positive. So everyone would say, this is great. This is going to be a great idea. And we found that to not be that helpful. Um, so the second time we went out and talked to a lot of people, we asked them why that, this idea wouldn't work. And the number one reason was that people can't teach. You have to go to school to teach. Um, you know, I had. People would share stories of great teachers, they had bad teachers. So we kind of narrowed down and said, if we could debunk that, then we could probably you know, build a business around this. Um, so yeah, so we set out. Um, I taught the first class. Um, we got a couple of my friends to teach the second. And the idea was if they can teach, then anyone can teach. And if students went to the classes, they would have a great, and if they had a great experience, this could turn into a product. And still to this day, um, we, you know, in the early days, we use Eventbrite. So Actually, I think it's still live. It's like Skillshare1.eventbrite.com and then 23456. So you can see the first 10 classes, and they're all done through Eventbrite, and we didn't build anything in the first three months of just being extremely user-focused. And then once we got through that first layer, then you know, we started building the product from there. What was that first class that you taught? Uh, the first class I taught was on how to play poker. So um, at that time in my life, I was playing poker um, for about, I would say, five to ten years, um, probably like five years, pretty seriously. So, you know, it's one, number one requested topic for my friends. So I taught it, and a lot of the people that came were my friends as well. Uh, but it was a really interesting experience because I thought I could teach poker, and it was a lot harder to simplify 
a lot of the concepts. Um, so it wasn't like a beginner class, or maybe it was. It was like a little bit more intermediate and advanced and like trying to explain those concepts. And I learned firsthand how hard it is to simplify something really complex. Um, and, I, and yeah, so that was the first class. And that class happened in person. Yeah, so all the classes happened in person. So the original idea for Skillshare was to turn every single city into a campus and every address into a classroom, every single person to a teacher and student. Um, so this was around the summer of 2010. So providing a little context of what's happening in the industry, like Groupon was like taking off, Uber just launched, Eventbrite was like the unicorn at the time, and you know, the you know, video, you know, YouTube was pretty big, but like, you know, um, hosting and all those things weren't as, as simple as it is today. Um, so we start off offline first, um, so. And so that brings us to, you've made a couple of pretty big pivots in the way your product works or, and or your business model through the years. Um, how did you figure out the timing of when you thought those pivots were necessary and then how'd you manage through that? Yeah, so um, about a year into the, the offline side of the business, we started looking at a lot of data to like kind of project what we think would happen in the future. And one thing we started to notice that really broke an original assumption we had was that um, frequency was fairly low and the price point was fairly low and our, and our transaction take rate was fairly low as well. So if you just added those three things up, um, there's just no world where we would have built a sustainable business. Um, so on average, people would take a class every quarter. Um, they would spend about $25 and we'd keep, I think, 15 or 20% of that. Um, we reached some type of density in New York. We replicated that at, at San Francisco, but we found it highly unlikely that we could replicate that in other cities. So, you know, you can, you know, if you use Uber as an example, I mean, the frequency is, you know, medium to high and the price point is low, and that could work. You know, Steamless and Grubhub fit into that. Or if the frequency is low, the price point have to be really high. So if you, even you look at WeWork or even General Assembly, and a lot of those local education companies, you know, they do charge like tens of thousands of dollars. But our model just wouldn't work locally, so then we said it, it could work online, and the math probably worked out there. So that was like probably the biggest you know, th reason we moved online. I'd say the second just the mission around, you know, we focus a lot on universal access to high-quality learning. So we would have students all around the world emailing us to take a class from you know, Chris Dixon on you know, fundraising, and they couldn't because they weren't physically in New York. And then the third reason of why we moved online was um, just innovation. So we felt that everyone taught offline in a very traditional way because everyone went to school. So it was lecture in front of a classroom, 45 minutes to 15 minutes of Q&A. Um, and we looked at online as just white canvas. You know, MOOCs just came out as like this thing. And um, we looked at that as a, a white space where you could try a lot of different things. Um, so for those three reasons, then we moved online um, about, I would say, two years after we started the company. And so what did it look like sort of recruiting that first batch of teachers to create classes that would be distributed online instead of in person? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of lessons learned. So um, at the time, I would say um, it looked like a small pivot. So if you want to do a basketball analogy, it was just like a little, little step. But in reality, it was like we traveled. It was huge. It was, uh, we really underestimated how big of a change it would be. So if you think about the teachers, you know, they got used to teaching offline and then trying to move them online. Was, there's a lot of questions like, how do I do this? Do I have to buy a camera now? What about the quality? You know, and you, know, you can ramble you know, in person, but online it needs to be edited. So like, you know, there are a lot of concerns about, do I have to edit this now? And 
to managing the community was a big part of it. The second is, um, you know, if you think about the employees we hired, so we, you know, we hired people that you know, worked at Yelp previously where they were used to building offline communities um, and they really you know, thrive off that energy and telling them now their job is you know, typing on their computer to someone and managing an online community is different. So, and then managing going to our investors and telling them the whole business is changing. So it was a pretty big transition. Um, it took, you know, I would say, a much longer than I, than I originally anticipated, but it was definitely the right move for sure. So that was one big change, and then also you experimented with business model until you sort of have settled in sort of the Netflix style model of a, a one price for all you can learn monthly. Uh, what was that process like, getting to the what you felt was the right business model? Yeah, so. Um, the challenge with online, with our industry online, was that um, in the early days, you know, I referred to it as like the wild, wild west of of learning. So, um, price points were all over the place. So, you know, a couple of years ago, if you went online, you could take an online class anywhere from a dollar to like tens of thousands of dollars. Um, and we just felt that on the internet, you know, that wouldn't be sustainable in the long run. So, anything that's digital, the price does drop, and there is a floor. Um, and we felt that the floor would be a subscription model. And we wanted to get in front of that disruption but versus reacting to it. Um, so we transisted the business from being a la carte to what we call subscriptions. Um, so that was probably the, the main motivation. I think the second one is, you know, as a company, we always thought about, you know, you know this company's really good at that, and that company's really good at this other thing. We felt that you know if we had a superpower, it was just going to be product, and we didn't want anything to get in the way of engagement. So we felt that if it was price per class, you know that's a very transactional model, very e-commerce, and we felt that we really wanted to build a BDC company and be world class, you know, at product and engineering. So the the decision definitely aligned with those. Um, this time we made the change; it was a lot smoother than when we did the offline online because we learned a lot. Um, and you know, we, we kept the comedian loop. We actually pulled them in much earlier. Um, we explained why we made a lot of decisions, got everyone on board, all the stakeholders from the community to our employees to our investors. And that transition was much more seamless than, than the, the first transition. So you mentioned a few audiences there, um, your community, your employees, your investors. When you make these changes, what are some of the tactics that you use to sort of bring them along and um, get them on board with the changes that you're making? Yeah, I would say the first time it was more, you know, I think when you're searching for product market fit as, as, a, as a startup, um, it, it is pretty intuition based. You know, it's, I, I have this grand vision, I have this great idea, I'm going to put it out there in the world and see what happens. Um, and I think the second time we actually did the opposite way, which is we made the transition very slowly and we just use a lot of data. So when we did a subscription model, you know, we released it and got 100 subscribers and eventually went to 1,000. And eventually, you know, we had a bunch of data that you know, made our case that this was the right transition. And then we kind of, you know, it was like a really smooth, you know, going from point A to point B versus like rip the Band-Aid off. So the second time, you know, understanding that you know, that was the right transition and the right approach definitely helped um, a lot. I think the first approach was probably a little bit more dramatic because, you know, the company's lifeline was on the line, right? So if we didn't make this key decision, the company would go out of business in a year or six months to a year. And that one was a little bit more challenging because everyone 
was split. So it was a 50-50, like it was essentially a coin flip. Um, so it was a pretty tough decision because whatever option, you know, as a leader and as a CEO I would pick, the other half would be upset. Um, but we had to make a decision. So I would say that's probably the biggest differences between the two was the second time we had a lot more experience, we transisted, um, where the first time was like we had to make that decision as quickly as possible. And did you have any departures due to these changes or did people generally get on board? I would say majority of people were on board. Obviously, there were people that um, either weren't a good fit when we go from you know offline to online. So um, other others might not have agreed and just left on their own accord. But yeah, you know, you know, one thing you know, as an entrepreneur, as startups, you just always have to remember like every decision has co you know consequences or you know has an inverse effect of what you think will happen. So just understanding all those components. I would say the second time we made the transition, like none of those things happened because of the way we managed it. Um, and I would say the, the third big lesson, just going through a lot of these transitions is, um, you know, when you're a startup at some point, you kind of have to stop going through a lot of those transitions because, um, you know, I, I think what it, we learned is that there's no business that's ever perfect. And at some point, you know, you kind of have to set your foundation and just build on top of it and improve it over time as well. Yeah, and you mentioned also that the second time you used more data. Do you think that was instrumental in sort of smoothing that transition? Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of qualitative and quantitative um, mixed with what we thought would happen in the future, right? So we kind of said, you know, right now the industry feels a little backwards, you know. So let's take any blockbuster movie that costs like hundreds of million dollars to make. You know, imagine if you went to the movie theater and they charged you $1,500 because of the budget, you know, that just seems so backwards. And that's, what's, that's what was happening in the industry. So we kind of paint the vision of like, we don't think that will be sustainable and we were right because the prices have come down over the past couple of years. Um, plus we backed it up with, you know, on the student side, it would be a better experience that tied with the mission of the company. Um, and then on the, on the supply side, um, you know, ensuring that teachers would have, you know, unlimited students rolling to their classes as well. So you've got a ton of great content for creative professionals. Was that uh, organic, that that was the type of content that people just seemed to want to teach and learn? Or did you purposefully focus on that from the start? Uh, we purposely focused, uh, we per in the early days, um, we purposely focused on it. So there's a couple things that um, I learned from you know working at Skillshare and working at Behance. And you know one thing that is definitely in the early days, and I still say we do it today, is one is just you kind of have to brute force everything. Um, so um, before I worked at Behance and Skillshare, I always thought, oh, you just build a website and it just kind of grows. You know, people just come to it. But <laughs> what we learned is like, it's just a lot of like brute force, roll your sleeves up and just kind of get it done. Um, so the second one is that's why we focus on, you know, um, niche communities to start. So, um, we noticed that design was taking off on the platform, um, so we started looking at it a little bit more closely and realized it was a huge opportunity because the, the, the community was really fragmented, very underserved, and a lot of the skills that were popping up were really high in demand. Um, so we kind of resourced the team against you know just focusing on that. So a lot of our strategies was really centered around getting network effects in very niche communities. And for about the first 12 to 18 months that we moved online, it was all design, so we just focused on the design community. 
And after 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 that, then we start seeing other communities kind of pop on the platform, and then you know that's kind of when we start replicating that strategy in different verticals. So today, you know, we have. Know, um, yeah, we do focus on the creative professional community, so all photographers, freelancers, um, chefs, um, you know, obviously designers um, of all sorts, and you know, getting network effects in those communities over, you know, and replicating that is what caused the platform to grow um, since then. And when you were saying that you noticed that things were taking off, what what kind of data were you looking at to to figure that out? Um. I think um, with any two, you know, so we're two-sided, right? So, you know, we're we're open pl platform that allows anyone to teach, and then we, we track this teacher and the supply side. So, one thing we notice is the, the 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 platform is always out of balance. So, one side is always taking off and pulling the other side, and vice versa. And we knew in the early days the constraint was on the supply side. Um, so, we knew that um, any increase there would be like dramatically impactful. And the so supply side for you is teachers. Teachers. So okay. number of teachers, number of classes that they teach were probably like the two metrics. And then on the student side, it's like how many, how many students are enrolling into those classes. Um, so in the early days, it was the, the demand side or the student side was, a, it was growing much quicker. Um, and you know, over time, then the supply side started exploding and vice versa. So we kind of look at both sides and track. And then you, we'll always see one side taking off faster than the other which allows us to really focus and figure out what the next set of tactics would be to manage the two sides of the platform. Yeah, and as you refined your business model, uh, you actually pay your teachers according to sort of how popular their classes are. Um, when did you figure out that that would be part of your strategy versus maybe more like the early YouTube where people are just putting content up? Yeah, that, that was actually more, um, a lot was really bottom up, and what what I mean by that is, um, I mean ideally, you know, I would let you know, it would, ideally everything would be free, um, but a lot of teachers, you know, they want to be compensated for sharing a lot of the knowledge that they have, and um, and we decided to you know create the business model around that behavior. Um, so a lot of teachers, you know, wanted to be compensated, and we created a structure that removed a lot of barriers for students to use. Uh, the platform and, and enrolled in a lot of these classes. The second thing is we notice a lot of our teachers, um, you know, there are influencers on the platform, there are native stars, but we realize like a lot of the great teachers within our community weren't, you know, super famous. Um, so because of that, we also wanted to remove the barrier around paying per class so that as a student, you know, you didn't have to worry about spending $20 on a class and having a bad experience. Um, so that also helped build a lot of the, the, the profiles, what we call native stars on the platform as well. Earlier you mentioned mission. Uh, I know mission has been important to you since the beginning. Can you talk a little about where that came from and then what you feel is sort of the benefit of being a mission-driven company? Yeah, so a lot of that came, so being a mission-driven, a lot of that came from personal experience. So. Um, I would say when I graduated grad school, um, so it was around 2006, um, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans um, about a year prior, about six to nine months. And um, at the time when I graduated, and, you, know, you know, you do what all college students, you kind of travel around the world. Um, I ended up getting an internship in London. Um, and it was like my dream job, you know, it was like working 
London at a coal advertising agency on Nike, which, you know, you know, as a 22-year-old, it's like a dream come true. Um, but, you know, one day I woke up and I was like, you know, this is really interesting. I'm selling more shoes to people. Um, there has to be something more to life than this. And, and I decided to, to move and pack my bags and move to New Orleans and, you know, essentially volunteered for about a year. Um, one of the places I volunteered at was a charter school. And they had this, it was a charter school in, in the Ninth Ward called Langston Hughes, and they were trying to change. Um, um, and their mission was to turn an 80% dropout rate to a college graduation rate. So I just became obsessed with not, not only that mission, but the whole city. So everyone that was moving in was you know, you know, moving to help rebuild the city, and it was just like a really fascinating time. And that just opened my eyes up to, to work on something that m made an impact in the world. Um, about a year later, what I realized is that everyone moved out of the city. And the reason, and me included, was they left to go start their real careers. So um, a lot of people came, whether it's for a weekend, to a year, to two years, if it was through Teach for America, they all left to go start you know, something else. And most of them moved to New York and SF. Um, and when I moved to New York, you know, I wanted to eventually start a company that you know, had the mission and the impact, but also had the for-profit side as well, so that you know, those people you know, that wanted a little bit of both could have that um, and, you know, that kind of created the foundation for Skillshare as well. And then I'm sure mission feeds into the culture of your company. I know you give a lot of thought to culture. Uh, how would you describe the culture and then how do you sort of maintain it or how do you think about uh, keeping a sort of consistent and uh, productive culture? Yeah, so we have a saying at Skillshare where we design the culture like we design the product. Um, and I, I would describe our culture as probably like threefold. Um, one is it's very mission driven. So you know what I you know described around for profit for good and people wanting to work in that type of company. I would say uh, we message that pretty heavily, and we do attract people um, that want to work in that environment. I would say the second is it's a very collaborative environment. Um, I mean it's very team driven, very collaborative, and third it's very decentralized. So we design the culture to push as many decisions down to the team. So and empower them. And um, what we realized throughout the years is w throughout the years that we had to recruit a very certain type of person that would thrive in that in, in that culture. So to maintain the culture, um, we set what we called our, our core values that we kind of vet all hiring and essentially performance against. Um, and it's around humility, adaptability, resourcefulness, and passion for excellence. So in the early days, when we didn't set this, um, you know, the, the culture fit test was, can you grab a beer with this person? Mm -hmm. And obviously, like most people passed that, and then we realized, okay, so then we updated and we said, what, you know, would you be able to send a flight with them from New York to SF? You know, a few people dropped out, and, and we realized that, you know, there were a lot of people that, um, um, that you know, um, passed that test but weren't a culture fit, and that's when we decided to shift over to the, these core values. So we said, if people value these values, then no matter how old they are, um, where they came from, how they grew up, you know, it, it didn't matter um, because we would all value the same things, and that is what would create a really strong culture. Um, so over the years, we've gotten really good at updating a lot of interview questions. Um, we train everyone around that performance. You know, awards are given against it, and it's just really embedded into the culture and the DNA of the company. So, what kind of awards do you give? Um, so we just had an offsite on Tuesday. So we have um, one, essentially a culture award that we give to someone that embodies 
We have one called, I think it's called like the Serena Williams Award around impact. So someone that gives, you know, had, you know, an individual or team that had the biggest impact in the quarter. Um, and then, you know, every week at our town hall, they have, um, they call the work award where it's just passed you know, from one person to the next on something that they you know, want to appreciate or give a shout out to another team member. So. Is there a trophy? Um, we don't really have trophies. We <laughs> tried that at one period, but we found that those usually break or get thrown in the trash. Or so no physical trophy moves from one person to the next. Um, I think that was more of like a decision the team made. Is like they said <coughs> that they didn't want a company where all these like inspirational sayings were on the wall and we gave all these trophies. It was more about um, just the acknowledgement they felt mattered a hundred times more than anything else. Interesting. And so. How do you now look for those things in the hiring process? And you're going through interviews um, or evaluating someone. Um, what are some key ways you look for those culture or core values? Um, one is that we, we have an interview dedicated to culture fit. Um, um, so I would say that's probably like you know the number one interview that a lot of people don't make it, don't pass. Um, so we said culture fit over skills fit for a lot of the roles, meaning. You know, if someone was great, you know, at their job, but they weren't a culture fit, we, we would pass on them 100% of the time. Um, and then we have, you know, a couple of other interviews that dive into more of the skills and their experience. But we have a whole interview dedicated to just making sure people are culture fits and um, and just training everyone in the company that are part of that process of, you know, how, how it works and how to identify um, who is and who isn't a culture fit. So one thing we preach is that not everyone's going to be a fit for Skillshare, but they might be a fit for another company and they probably would excel there um, and vice versa. So, um, but, you know, we said we would definitely want to attract people that were a culture fit here that would, you know, um, excel in, in our environment. So shifting gears a little bit to strategy, uh, you talked earlier about recognizing some shifts uh, that you anticipated in learning online. Um, how do you think about strategy now and how do you run a planning process so that you're constantly sort of staying ahead of the game? Yeah, so let me see. Um, so I would say, you know, over the years, one thing that I definitely learned um, being an entrepreneur, being a CEO, being a leader is definitely one articulating a very clear and shared vision um, with the team and setting and you know aligning everyone around a very clear strategy to achieve that vision. And what I've realized over the years is that, is that it's really important because it allows the team to one set very ambitious goals. Um, two, it, it provides a lot of context for a lot of people to make strategic decisions. And three, just alignment. So if we're all jumping in a boat, um, just making sure that we're all rowing the same direction together. Um, so I would say over the years we got much better at you know planning and, and making decisions and so I'd say you know definitely one of the things that I do is um, you know just getting a lot of feedback in from the team from the community from what's happening in the industry so um, we have a pretty thorough I would say planning process around just getting as much information um, I'd say the second thing as a leader um, over the years, I spent a lot more time just listening. So I would say, that, you know, tied to number one, number two, just listening and just hearing, you know, whether it's a teacher giving feedback on the product or, you know, you know, all the way down to maybe even intern suggesting idea to just reading what's happening just on the internet, just getting all this information as much, you know, just synthesizing all this information 
And three, that then translates into like, you know, our planning process. So um, I won't go into too much detail, but it's, you know, pretty standard across all companies of how we plan for the year and by quarter and monthly and what we do on a weekly and a daily cadence. Um, but I found that that structure is what allows the team to move really quickly. It's what allows people to make decisions and allows us to you know, have a higher hit rate on making better decisions as a company as well. And your company's grown uh, through the years. How do you now communicate to the entire company? Do you have all hands? How do you get the message yeah. to everyone? Um, I, I, what I've realized is, oh, one observation is um, I've actually been speaking a lot less. Um, so in the early days when the company was you know, three to five people, uh, I would talk a lot. Um, today, it's, I, would, I, I speak very, I speak a lot less than I did previously, and I think the reason is because there's a lot of other leaders that merged in the company, and you know, allowing and giving them those opportunities, and allowing them to kind of lead their teams. Um, I would say the second is I actually got this as a tip from the C of Wattpad. Um, so Alan um, writes. Uh, he he told me at a, at a CEO summit that he writes every single day. So. Every single day, he writes a blog post, sends it out to the team. Um, he's been doing it for about two years. And I found that to be extremely impactful. So I, I write at least once a, once a week. And it's going through something either vision or mission-related, culture-related. Um, sometimes if I have a lot of people ask me the same questions, I might write about it. You know, So we have an internal blog that, that I update. And I find that writing things down and you know, communicating that to the team uh, has been really helpful. Um, then every quarter we have a retreat or offsite. So I, I'll usually open it up with an hour where I'll walk through, you know, what happened in the past quarter, what's you know, what the priorities of the next, and then kind of zoom out over the next one and three years. So just allowing everyone to understand where we're going and why it's important. Um, so yeah, that's usually the framework that I've been doing today. Very cool. I didn't know that you wrote every week. So like, what was the topic of last week, or maybe a recent one? Um, so the first post I ever wrote was right after we closed the Series B. And um, I wrote a post called Being Frugal because I was getting so many requests on so many things people wanted to purchase. And I wrote a whole post on why, why we need to be frugal. I kind of lifted the hood on where the expenses were going to over the next 18 months. Most of it was going to people, showing that you know, that's a pretty big line item. I mean, in showing and explaining to people why that mattered, and I would say the next week, all the requests just disappeared. What kinds of things did they want to buy? Um, it wasn't anything like crazy. It was just kind of like, um, I, I think you'll just, you know, throwing money at problems is really easy. So we need to hire three more people for this team, and here's, you know, or, you know, we need better, you know, better chairs. And it, some of them were pretty valid, but it was just so over. We were, I was just getting so many requests from the entire company that I just realized it was more of a cultural shift. And some of these ex, you know, expenses were definitely valid, but most of them were nice-to-haves versus requirements. I would say the latest thing I wrote was you know, based, you know, a lot of, um, um, I wrote a whole post just on what the updated product experience would be. So I realized that you know, I would talk and meet with teams that were very fragmented, so a lot of people didn't have context to the entire experience. So just writing a whole dedicated post to that. Um, sometimes I'll celebrate milestones. I wrote one around, um, we reach a pretty big milestone for, from a subscriber standpoint. So, you know, I, I pulled out a, a, a thing, I, uh, 
a vision document I wrote about 18 months ago that said, you know, in 18 months we'll hit this milestone and, you know, you know copy and paste of that showed people like the power of setting goals and vision and got people pretty excited. So it depends on, you know, um, on, but I do have a running list of topics um, that I'll you know, pluck out. So I think tomorrow I'm writing one on goal setting, which is a little bit more boring, but it's kind of going over like how we should set goals as a company, why it's important. Um, you know, if you're on a team, you know, really understanding like how it, what you're working on ladders up to impact and how to think about it uh, as well. Can people respond and like comments to your posts? Yeah, Do you so see any discussion sort of generated around it. Um, people can. So essentially, it's Square, I use Squarespace internally, so I, and um, but no one never does. So. Um, you know, we, ha we do have a Slack room where people can ask questions at any time. Um, but, uh, you know, I do get a lot of feedback that people do appreciate it. And, you know, I do get a lot of requests for topics that, you know, people want me to write about. And um, I have found that um, that it was a really strong way to get alignment and, and clarity on a lot of the initiatives um, that, that we're working on currently. So and it's actually really hard to take things in your head and write it in a very short, concise blog post. So. I found that um, that exercise has been, personally for me, has been amazing because I've you know, learned how to you know, r write things down and communicate in a much more simplified way. Um, and I've also heard people in, you know, um, in meetings say, oh, you should check out that blog post that Michael wrote. Um, um, so I've been thinking about like, you know, having other people write um, internally as well, and that'll probably be the next evolution of that. Well, that's fantastic. You mentioned some discussion happens on Slack. So you, when you started the company, that was like pre-Slack days. Yeah. Uh, when did you adopt? Everybody sort of has it now, but how did you see it change the way people interact? Um, uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Slack. I, I actually turn off all my notifications for Slack. How come? Um, I, I have my, so over the years I've also understood my own workflow and where I'm the most productive. So um, I, have a, I have a very, I would say, I wouldn't say rigid, but I have a very set schedule and a calendar of what I do on a weekly basis and on a daily basis. Um, and I found with Slack, what's interesting about it is that um, it's very like reactive and it's very sh like, by, uh, but like it, it breaks your flow throughout the day. So um, one thing we do at Skillshare is we have no meetings in the morning. So everything from the time you come into the office to lunch is like, other than your daily stand-up, which is about five or ten minutes, it's you know pretty meeting-free. Obviously, you know there's exceptions to the rule, and the reason is, you know, in the morning, you know, I, I actually do believe that everyone's brain and energy levels like a gas tank, and throughout the day it kind of depletes. So in the morning, we, you know, as a company, focus everyone on just solving and working on the hardest thing you have to work on, and then using your, you know, the morning to do that. With Slack, it's kind of like if you're really, you know, if you're if you're engineering your coding, you're in the rhythm, or if you're like trying to figure out a strategic problem and put your thoughts together. Once you get a Slack notification, that like, breaks up your flow <laughs> and it breaks up your flow and breaks up your flow. Um, so I, I do think it maybe does bring emails down, but the trade-off is that you get disrupted a lot. Um, so. so tell me more, I'm fascinated by the no morning meetings uh, practice. When did you put that into place? It's always, it always it's, you know, it's been in the part of the company since day one. Did you do that before Skillshare as well? Um, it, it came out of my experience at Behance. Um, you know, we, Scott Belsky um, 
wrote a book on productivity for creative professionals. And part of the process of a, around writing the book is that we interviewed a lot of individuals, teams, at, you know, companies like Apple to freelancers to designers. And through that research, we would always pull out, you know, any, any insights and write articles about it and eventually turn it into the book that Scott wrote. One of the things I noticed is that um, the most productive people in the world, um, the, um, there are a lot of counterintuitive things they've done, they did, but one of them was, this is, okay, this is also pre-wake up really early and get shit done movement on Medium. <laughs> but there was a pattern where a lot of them would block out time and just focus on executing. So, and we first noticed that with a lot of writers. So a lot of writers would block out time. Then we saw a lot of the designers and a lot of entrepreneurs did the same thing. And then we also found research that supported that very f less than 20% of people are actually what they call night owls that are productive at night. Um, and then I realized that I was part of the 80% and I started doing it personally. Um, and yeah, so it's been part of my process for years, I would say over the past decade, implemented in the company and it's also worked wonders as well. Um, so provide a little bit of structure. Obviously it's not like a rule that we do, but it's part of the culture and um, it's really quiet in the office in the morning and then once the 2, 3 p.m. hits, it gets really loud. So. So I actually block off time as well, and I find it to be very valuable. Are there any other productivity frameworks that you lean on? Yeah, um, so a couple that come to mind is one is I have a document that I update every week that is um, kind of what, what I'm projecting that I would like to happen in a year. So the interesting thing about that document is I kind of wrote one for work and one for personal life. And I started doing this about in the beginning of 2014. Um, and everything I wrote in 2014 and 2015 actually happened. So I don't know if it's because I visualized it or I thought about it, I wrote it, I updated it on a weekly basis, but you know, some of these things that, you know, what I've learned is it really keeps you focused on what you're trying to accomplish. And, and as humans, you just forget, you know, you just forget what, what you want to accomplish. You know, it's easy to say, you know, it's like a simplified version is I want to, you know, grow my company to X. And then, you know, there's a lot of steps <laughs> along the way that you, know, you kind of need to stay focused on. And as humans, you get really excited by new ideas or new initiatives, so, you know, and to get there, you actually just have to invest into the long term. Um, the second is tied to what I told you about writing, something we tried at the company, which we read about Amazon, was like, you know, there's a lot of discussions like, you know, one is what is strategy, how do you present it at a company, and how do you do it at a startup? So, you know, you know, originally we adopted whatever way you want to. You know, some people are visual, some people like PowerPoints, some people want to just come in and wing it. Um, we tried this new thing where you just write it on one page, um, and that um, was the most productive thing we saw in the company. So, um, so the switch we used to do is we would have um, strategy meetings where we come in and discuss a problem together. And what, I, what we realized, um, so this is more team productivity and culture, we would realize is that a lot, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of context, and a lot of decisions that are made in a one-hour meeting um, are, you know, without that context, you know, most of the time those are bad decisions. And we realize that people are thinking about the, you know, the problem they're trying to solve over weeks or months through data analysis, gut, everything, and coming into the meeting with something prepared, and it could be one option or two or three, we found to be the most productive and also had the highest hit rate of being successful. Um, so those are some of the. Th tweaks and changes we've made. Um, you know, me personally is, you know, 
like just trying to be a productive person and from a company trying to figure out how to design the, the, the most efficient culture as well. Very interesting. So maybe to wrap up, is if you could go back in time to 2010 and uh, talk to Mike, the Michael then and give him one piece of advice, uh, what would you say? Um, I, 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 if I had to give myself advice in 2010, I would, I would definitely really theme it around being very patient and spending more time listening. I mean, these are probably two things I've learned over the years. Um, one, you know, everything takes a lot longer than you expect. The road is a lot harder. It could change. Um, and I think, you know, the young, you know, the younger version of myself is like, you know, let's go, let's make this happen as quickly as possible. And she also realized that, you know, if you're running a marathon, you know, running the first mile in, you know, sub five minutes might not be the best idea. And, you know, getting to really nice rhythm, um, you know, kind of end up getting there much faster than sprinting so quickly. So definitely being patient. And I think the second one is just listening. Um, I think when I was much younger, and especially when everything was so gut intuition based around product market fit, um, you know, you have a very clear vision, but the trap is if you're too narrow or you're, you're I, don't, I don't want to use the word stubborn, but if you're not listening, you might p miss certain cues that can cause you, you know, to maybe change the course of the direction that puts you um, closer to what you want to accomplish. So definitely, you know, you don't want to you know, take everyone's feedback and pivot and change the direction every day, but you also don't want to be so rigid that you're unwilling to hear and be receptive. Um, and I, I think, you know, over the past, let's say, a couple of years, I've spent a lot more time being patient, spent a lot of time listening, and um, those two things have allowed the company to be a lot more successful as a result. I think that's fantastic advice. The last question, I know you're an NBA fan. Should we just give the trophy to the Warriors right now and <laughs> not play the season? Um, I think I was, you know, playing around on Instagram, and I think I saw someone say, like, they tuck the biggest choke artist and added him to the other team that had the biggest choke artist. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think they have a great team, but, you know, when it really comes down to the wire, the only thing that matters is the finals and the playoffs. And uh, I think the Warriors have a great team, and they just added the two biggest choke artists. <laughs> to the team, and we'll see where that plays out. Well, I know out. you're a LeBron fan, so you're biased, so I guess we'll, yeah. we'll see next June what happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. All right, Michael, thanks for being with yeah, us Yeah, thanks today. for having me.